Okay, so <clears throat> we have been talking about uh, the Eightfold Path, and uh, you all know the three main divisions of the Eightfold Path, right? What are they? Wisdom, <laughs> wisdom, meditation. Wisdom, yeah. Virtue, two. Virtue, meditation. Meditation, great. And wisdom is what? Right understanding. Right understanding. Right intention. Right intention. And virtue, that's the one we're on now. Is right. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. We talked about right speech and right action at length. And two weeks ago, we started talking about right livelihood. And then last week, I think we must have talked about right livelihood again. Yeah. The right part of those is is this an interpretation of the Pali, right? Is it or yeah, no, it's uh yeah. Is that the correct interpretation of the Pali? Because it, you know they're they're so ambiguous what right is. Yeah. Well I it's yeah. Uh, idiomatically I think it's uh a reasonable translation, a, a more accurate translation would be uh, maybe wholesome versus unwholesome. Because, yeah, idiomatically, we think of what's right as what's wholesome. But uh, that's good enough, in my opinion. But one of the things that we have talked about, particularly in all of these things, is that to, to practice the wholesome version of one of these things, speech, action, and livelihood, begins with not practicing the unwholesome version. Right? And usually the way that uh, the descriptions of these are phrases in terms of the unwholesome ones. And uh, generally, we don't dwell too much on what the wholesome counterpart is. But in this discussion, we've been trying to, to emphasize that, that not engaging in uh, unwholesome or wrong livelihood is, uh, is definitely not the end of right livelihood. And the other thing that we've talked about emphasized all along here is that these are practices. Uh, these are not rules. These are not commandments. These are not moral imperatives. Uh, but rather they are practices. And they're practices that serve the purpose of, of uh, making you more mindful. And making you mindful in particular of the intentions behind your actions. When you get in touch with the intentions behind your action, you become aware of the workings of uh, desire and aversion, of every form of desire and every form of uh, aversion, uh, and how how they drive your behavior and how they lead you to justify and rationalize a lot of uh, things that uh, aren't particularly wholesome.
So there are practices, and there are practices that can change the way you are at a very deep level. They are, they are practices that lead to engaging in uh, karmically wholesome intentions and the behaviors that flow out of the, those intentions. And that, well basically every time you act on an intention that is rooted in desire, you make yourself uh, a more desirous person. And every time you act uh, on an intention that is based in aversion, you make yourself a more aversion problem person. And if you'll recall that, that craving, desire, and aversion is a cause of suffering, then every time that you engage in an action that's rooted in one of these unwholesome intentions, it makes you more prone to suffering in the future. So that's the sense in which they, it's creating bad karma. Through becoming mindful, you can act out of a different set of intentions. Loving kindness, compassion, patience, generosity, and so on and so forth. And whenever you act out of these kinds of uh, intentions, you're, you're loosening the hold that desire and aversion have on you. You're creating a kind of karma that is going to make you into a person who is less prone to suffering, regardless of what happens to you, regardless of what situation you find yourself in. Through practicing virtue, not only do you become aware of desire and aversion, of craving in all of its different forms and the way it drives your behavior, it also helps you to become aware of how those are in turn rooted in uh, selfishness and in the delusion uh, that you are this separate self to, to be cherished and protected and so on and so forth. When you act out of these more other-oriented, non-selfish, you know, generosity, loving-kindness, so on and so forth, those are non-selfish, although they are very personally rewarding and actually are the sources of great pleasure, but they are inherently non-selfish. And by doing so, you're creating a kind of karma that loosens the whole the delusion of selfhood has on you. Practice of virtue is a very powerful practice that can change you over time. And the other point that we wanted to make is that, as with any practice, you're not expected to be perfect. You're expected to be striving to work to work towards perfection, and that to engage in wrong speech, or wrong action, or wrong livelihood, or to fail to uh, engage in the, in the positive counterpart of right speech, right action, right livelihood, isn't, isn't any kind of a personal failure. It's the process by which you learn, and the 
process by which you transform yourself. And you should not judge yourself except on the basis of uh, whether or not you are becoming more mindful and whether or not you are, uh, as a result of that mindfulness, changing. And even more so, none of us is in a position to judge anybody else. Because the main thing that anybody would judge is suffering from is, is ignorance. And uh, are, you, are you to blame for your ignorance? <laughs> it's not very reasonable. So when you find, when you find somebody else uh, engaging in wrong speech, wrong action, and right livelihood, the appropriate response is compassion. Because after all, what they're doing is only creating the certainty of more suffering for themselves in the future, and uh, creating a much giving delusion and ignorance a much stronger hold on them than, than it already has. So there's no place in the practice of virtue and study of virtue and so forth for any kind of blame or judgment of yourself or anybody else. It's merely a place for learning and growth. Good. So that's the background for that. <laughs> so we started talking about right livelihood, and I want to hear, I, I hope you've had a couple of weeks now to think about right livelihood. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Just remind me again, what is the way it's usually, the right livelihood is usually described? How you make a living. How you make a living, and what makes it right or wrong is... Not causing harm. Not causing harm to other beings. And actually all, all of the virtue we've talked about is really, it's just a detailed elaboration of a single principle of not causing unnecessary or avoidable uh, harm in a world where suffering is uh, bound to be present. It's not creating any more if you can avoid it. So, right livelihood is not engaging in sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. And what are the examples that are usually given for that? I have a question. Okay, yeah. Um, well, it's sort of a question. Maybe I just want your comment on it. I, I know people who work at Hughes, not Hughes, what's it called? Raytheon. Raytheon. And, uh, you know, they're good friends, they're husbands of friends. And I've always had a hard time with it. And I know I, I can't really judge them, as you just said. Um, but in myself, I feel I shrink from them in a way because I don't understand how they could do it. I don't know, maybe you could just comment on that. Well, this is a really important thing for us to look into and understand how, how anybody could do any of these things. And the simple answer is how they could do it 
is that they believe that they are a separate self, and they believe that their happiness and their suffering comes from their interaction with what is not self, and uh, therefore that takes priority over everything else. So, so they work for Raytheon out of love for their children, because they want their children to be happy, they want their children to have the latest electronic gizmos and the most <laughs> fashionable clothes and go to the great, greatest summer camps and go to the best university so they can perpetuate the whole thing. You know, and they want these things for themselves. Their children are just an extension of themselves. So it's coming out of selfishness, desire, and aversion. And this is what we want to get to the root of and examine what the alternatives are. Just as a devil's advocate on that, um, just to, to use this example, I think there's people who work at Raytheon who actually think they are helping people in terms of, you know, the defense of our nation. I mean, it's a delusion that maybe that that's ultimately helpful, but I guess I would beg to differ that they're all in it because they're selfish and want their technological gadgets and stuff. I think some people are in it actually and think it's a uh, um, I think it is a right attitude. Right? Okay, yeah, and, and I, I, that's a very good point. I'm glad you... And other, let's put it differently. There's some people that actually work for Raytheon because they ideologically believe, believe it's a, the right and good thing to do, right? Yeah. The same thing, there's generals in the army that think that. And there's politicians that think we should go to war here or there or, you know, for all the same reason. So that's what we've got to look into. That's what we've got to examine. I had an uncle who used to work for, I'm not sure which corporation it is, it's famous, they make parts for atomic bombs. Mm -hmm. And he's a very high octane electronics engineer. And um, his wife is Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And I got a chance to talk to both of them about, so uh, what's that about? Why you do that? And he said, there are an awful lot of irresponsible people. And I try to be a responsible person. And I think it is better that I have this job than that someone else has this job. Mm -hmm. And I will be very mindful and careful of it and do my best to see to it that although I have to make these parts, we're thinking about this and we're not, you know, saying gaily forward, gaily forward, let's blow something up. And that, 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 the argument that she also posed that, you know, you, you don't really know what's in the minds of some of these people. On the other hand, I have another very close relative who did very similar electronics things. Another electronics engineer, my family's stuffed with them. Uh, <laughs> And he was a bitter and angry human being, and he was doing what he was doing to, in hopes that he could bring about Armageddon and the Second Coming. He really needed the world to end as quickly as possible. And yeah, and there, there's, there's actually that's a very popular way of thinking nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> Uh, the sooner the world comes to an end, the sooner it the, the sooner we get to start all over and, and do it right this time. So, 
But it, 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 you both made a very good point. You cannot judge somebody else. You, you really can't. It, it's not possible. Somebody may be doing something that you think is totally wrong. But that, that's why the intention is the most important thing. It's not what you do. It's the intention behind it. And somebody who sincerely believes that working for Raytheon or making atomic weapon parts, you know, or being a general in the army or any of these things, they may, they may have the best of intentions. So, and the, the truth is that none of us really have the kind of omniscience that we can look into the future and know who is ultimately right. So, that brings a point back. These, these are practices for an individual to do. They're not the basis to judge somebody else. Uh, it's only natural when you have your beliefs that I mean, you, they wouldn't be your beliefs if you didn't believe they were better than some other belief. You, if you thought another belief was better, that, that would be your <laughs> So what, what these practices are about are the decisions that you make. And you may make the decision not to work for Raytheon. And that's really great. And somebody else may make the decision to work for Raytheon. And they can have they could, it could be a very idealistic, and they could, they could believe that they have thought it through thoroughly and weighed all the alternatives, and they've decided it's the very best contribution that they can make to the greater well-being of the world. And it's not our place to judge. It really isn't. But do you think that describes the majority of people that work for Raytheon? Or anywhere else, for that matter? Doesn't describe the majority of people. <laughs> the majority of people. That's right, and and we're all part of that majority. <laughs> and so, really, what right livelihood is asking us to do is to examine carefully what what are our motivations and intentions, and where it becomes a problem is where you know that what you're doing in some way or another, contributes to, to the harm of others. But you do it anyway because of the, because of the uh, rewards or, or the suffering that's avoided for either your personal self or your extended self in the form of your family or your further extended self in the form of whatever social group that you feel like you're a part of and you identify with. Uh, right on up to the whole nation, you do it because you think it's good to, for this nation, and even there, you're making that an extended self. So you're still you're still acting out of the selfish interests of the self, no matter where you set those boundaries. And really, the Buddhist point was: as long as you have the delusion that that kind of selfhood and self nature exists at all, acting. Uh, uh, out of intentions that are rooted in that ignorance only makes that ignorance stronger. And likewise for the desire and aversion, which are manifestations of that. If you believe 
no matter where you set the boundary, national or the skin of your body or wherever you set the boundary, if, if you believe that there's a self and other, you make that boundary into a zone of struggle. Especially if you not only believe that there are these two categories, the universe consists of these two categories, self and other, uh, if you further believe that the happiness and suffering of self is due to the interaction between self and other, then you've really got a zone of struggle. And that's what we're getting at. And we spent a fair bit of time talking about, some of you weren't here, we talked about uh, the first, uh, second, and third noble truths. And one of the things that we tried to make clear there is the way in which holding this mistaken notion of the way things are and operating from the desire and aversion that it inevitably generates is what causes our suffering. And so if you want to be free from suffering, you need to free yourself from this delusion and from the craving that arises out of that delusion. So that's what this practice is really uh, rooted in. It's, it's rooted in, uh, and that's what the Buddha taught, right? What, 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 when, every time he's asked, what did the Buddha tell everyone he taught? I like, I like hearing you all repeat this, and now you know it. <laughs> suffering, suffering in the end of suffering. He didn't teach anything else. Didn't teach enlightenment, didn't teach right and wrong, anything else. He taught suffering in the end of suffering. And that's what this comes out of. That's what a right livelihood comes out of. Suffering and the end of suffering. And of course, to begin with, we're really fond of that idea, you know, yeah, I want the end of my suffering. <laughs> but as we grow wiser, we start to realize more and more there's no end to my suffering as long as others are suffering because I'm not really separate from others. And as a matter of fact, most of my suffering comes directly from feeling like I'm separate from others. So turning that on its head is, is really how you escape from suffering. So. That's where this is all coming from. So back to people that work for Raytheon. We cannot judge them, but we must decide for ourselves. And not just about Raytheon. It's easy to pick on Raytheon. It's real easy to pick on Raytheon. But what about all the other places that Thanks. people work? Thanks. Yeah, great idea. Thanks. Wow. Is working for a bank right livelihood? Well, we can't make a blanket statement. <laughs> but if you're working for a bank and you haven't thought about this issue, you know, then, then you aren't practicing right livelihood, that's for sure. And we might you might look at the world and, you, and the more you think about it, the banks, Walmart, Oil companies, uh, big corporations, you see the list gets longer and longer, and you end up saying, I guess I better not work. <laughs> it's really hard to find something to do that, uh, that, that's not tainted in one way or another, causing. And that's a really, that's a really good place to get to in your thinking. Mm -hmm is when you realize that, okay, 
it's not simple. We can't make up a list of right livelihoods and wrong livelihoods. You know, and, and what's often taught is that that uh, that wrong livelihood is things like uh, uh, trading in, in weapons or drugs and alcohol or, or uh, serving in the military <clears throat> where you have a gun in your hand and your job is to kill people, uh, uh, killing animals and you know, being a butcher, slaughtering them for other people to eat. This is kind of the traditional way that the right livelihood is explained, that you don't do any of those things. No, you work for Raytheon, you work for the bank, whatever, but you don't do these other things. So we're already looking at it a little more closely. And when we look at livelihood, and right now keep in mind we're just looking at livelihood so far in this discussion in terms of how you make your living, and that is not, that's only a small part of livelihood. But just in terms of how you make your living, if you look at it carefully, you're going to end up with a, like a shorter and shorter and shorter list of things that you can rationalize as right livelihood. It's the nature of the world. And in a way, it kind of takes us back to the very beginning when we were examining uh, the, the nature of suffering and realized that beings like ourselves can't live uh, it, this kind of world. It's impossible to live without causing some harm to other beings. It's just the way it is. Everything, every, you can't live without it causing harm to other beings which is what led one sect in the time of the Buddha to come to the conclusion that the most spiritually evolved thing that you could do is to sit down, not move, not eat, not drink until you die. That was the most holy act possible. But we realized that, okay, there's, there is a certain amount of harm, injury, pain, and suffering in this world that is inevitable. So we draw the distinction between what, what, is, what can be avoided, what's unnecessary, and what is unavoidable. So we, so we don't try to start from this dramatic place of, uh, I'm going to live in such a way it causes absolutely no harm to any other being. It's impossible. You'd end up not being able to work if you, if you are strict enough in your definition of right livelihood. So let's back away from that and say you're trying what you're trying to do. You'd like the net result of the way you make your living to, to do more good than it does harm. Ideally it would be a net positive and that's probably about the best you can hope for. But at least it gives you something to work with. Now, and, and this was the, you know, we already dealt with this question, somebody who works for Raytheon, they may have decided in their mind that the, the benefits, the net total positive benefit to, to the world, to every living organism in the world, is, is greater than the net total harm to everything in the world that is done by fulfilling their job. 
And if they've done their best to figure that out, they've met the requirements of right livelihood. Which doesn't mean that they're right. They could be totally mistaken. We have absolutely no way. All we can do is make our best guess and things like this. Well, we can also, can we also engage them, you know, in a conversation yeah. to see what's the calculation that says that what you're doing is has a net net positive balance. And by getting engaged in that conversation, one actually ends up reflecting on one's own yeah. net balance. That's we'll engage them in the conversation. But the first conversation needs to be the one that happens in your own mind and it needs not to end that you sat down one night with a bottle of wine and thought it through and at the end of the evening you decided that the best thing I can do is work for Raytheon or whatever it is. You, know, you got to keep if you're practicing right livelihood, you got to keep revisiting the question, and you got to keep looking at the result, and be open to changing your view. That's the hardest part. That's the hardest part for a human being to do is to change your views. Because what we're looking for is we're looking for a way of seeing things that this is solid. Okay, I don't need to ever. You know, I've got it all figured out. Don't need to ever change any of my thinking. But it just doesn't work. But, you know, back to, let's say you're the one, you're having a conversation with yourself about working for Raytheon or, or any, any of these other things that you might be doing. Uh, and the impact that it has. Now, would it be the case that anybody in this room or likely anybody, anywhere, is only doing, only making a living doing the job they do as a result of having come to the conclusion that this is, this is the thing that would do the most, would be of the most benefit to the world? No. <laughs> and that's the other thing, is, is you look at it and try to see how much how much of my thought processes uh, about choosing if this is an appropriate livelihood are based in ignorance and desire and aversion? And try to minimize those. That's actually more important in the beginning than trying to figure out. I mean, at some point, at some point, it's appropriate to to look at the larger picture and try to figure out uh, what the net consequences are of what you're doing. But to begin with, it's just to, to, it's a practice of mindfulness. It's come to recognize how much does desire and aversion play in your decision to do what you do. And, uh, and how much, how much is, how, how much is it that ignorance is driving that desire and aversion? Then you're using right livelihood as a practice, which may eventually lead you to do something different for a living. But that's not really the point. The point is that you start examining yourself and your motives. And yes, you can help somebody else. You see somebody else who, who they're doing something that you think is uh, very harmful, but they are convinced that it's actually a good thing to do. Well, well, let me ask you the question. 
do do you see any obligation to try to to open a discussion with somebody about something like that? It's too convoluted to open a discussion. Well, does that mean that you should never try to discuss these things with someone? Well, if they, they have tendency, you can see they have a tendency to want to think about it, and you can sense that tendency, then it seems like it would be... Okay, yeah, it's different. conditional. Like, yeah. Sometimes yes, sometimes yeah. no. Sometimes it's absolutely pointless. Sometimes, and very often, in fact, what you have to be careful of is you decided to engage somebody in this particular conversation, and all you're going to do is make them even more strongly entrenched in the view they already hold. That happens a lot. Uh, I see I see that this country has become extremely polarized and the harder one side pushes the more uh, the more the other side pushes back extremely polarized and so but this but does that mean you should never try to have a conversation and change somebody else's views depends on your motive what's that on your motive. Why are you doing this? Right. Why are you doing it? Exactly. Why are you doing it? Because you believe you're right and they're wrong. You're the good guy and they're the bad guy. That's not a very good motive. But at the same time, you know, it's it's easy to think of a lot of reasons not to engage in these kinds of dialogue. I was uh, I was a teenager and young adult in the 1960s, and I grew up in, in the South, grew up first in Arizona and then in Texas. <laughs> in, in the town we lived in in Texas, our home was uh, a block from Texas Avenue, and the community on the other side of Texas Avenue from where my family home was was commonly known as Nigger Town. And people came across Texas Avenue to clean our houses and to mow our grass. And they couldn't use the same washroom, so they couldn't uh, drink out of the same water fountains. Uh, they knew their place. They talked to white people in a particular way, and they were treated very harshly. And there were some of these people that were lynched during my childhood. I never saw it, but I certainly heard about it. That changed. How long ago was that? Do the arithmetic. 50 years. 40 years. 50 years. 1963 was 50 years ago. And... By, by 1983, 20 years later, huge changes has already taken place. Because somebody did open the dialogue. And not only that, they opened the dialogue in a way that worked. Not every way worked. And this is what makes us hesitate. We, we, we hesitate to stick our necks out. We also hesitate to create more problems, or we hesitate because we think there's no point. But we have to look and see how much change has been brought about 
because somebody was willing to open up the dialogue, challenge other people's view, and change can come about. Right? So, back to the question. So, is there, is there, in terms of, we could put this in terms of right livelihood. <laughs> um, livelihood goes beyond just how you make your living. Back in the Buddhist days, agrarian society, just beginning to become a, a merchant-based society. Um, how you made your living, it, it was pretty simple. But nowadays, you can make your living working for working long hours for very little money for a nonprofit trying to help people. And then you take your meager paycheck and you spend it. And how you spend it is part of your livelihood, how you make your living. So livelihood goes, goes far beyond just how you make your living anymore. It's how you stay alive. Your livelihood is where you live, how you live, what you eat, how you get from here to there, what kind of clothes you wear, where they're made, which stores that you shop in, so on and so forth. That's all part of livelihood now. And we're still just talking about wrong livelihood is, is buying things, using things, shopping things, living in a way that causes, it causes a lot of unnecessary harm. Being wasteful, buying products that are produced in exploitive conditions, so on and so forth, all, all these different kinds of things. They all need to be looked at, but they're all part of how do you avoid wrong livelihood. So the positive side of right livelihood is not just what you don't do, it's what you do to try to change the way things are. So do you have an obligation in terms of right livelihood to open a dialogue with people about what Raytheon does and what what supporting Raytheon through your time and expertise and effort does. Do you? Yeah. You say yes, right? Other opinion? Yes, I have another opinion. <laughs> What's your opinion? Let's substitute the military for Raytheon. Sure. Right. The American military is very different than many, many, many of the militaries around the world. One is that they are firmly under the control of the civilian leadership. Okay. You mean the people in the corporation? They are firmly, they're just doing what they are ordered to do yeah. by the whole military, yeah, right. okay? Yeah. But the, the difference is in the military in America is that there is a provision, and as far as I know, there's, I don't know of any other one that has this statement in the, when you take the oath that says to obey all lawful orders. 
The word waffle, yeah. Yes, and the word waffle is in there. And that is so that you don't end up with people going, shooting civilians when just the Unless Congress passes a law and says, <laughs> right. Okay. So when you get all, when you get work your way through through the path, what the military is doing is what they're told. Mm -hmm. And who tells the people that tell them what to do? And that's the voters. That's right. Right. And it, and it just goes around in the big circle. So when someone is trying to convince somebody, don't join the military. The answer that I've got is, well, I'm just doing what you tell me to do. So how do you convince, how do you, how do you engage someone in a conversation when you are the one that's at fault because you're not the one that's voting but or taking the energy to see which path to take? Well, then you know, there's a good point. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're not the one that's voting, why are you voting? I agree with you totally. If the United States military ever does something that you don't agree with, you know, you have to, have you done what you could to make that difference? And it goes beyond that. The dialogue, it's not, you know, what's to be gained by trying to talk somebody out of joining the military? And for that matter, what's to be gained by trying to talk an engineer out of working for Raytheon? Giving up, giving up his pension, his seniority, uh, the salary, uh, all these other things. What's to be gained by that? But does that mean that you should sit by and say nothing and do nothing? See, that's the point that I'm getting at. That ultimately, right livelihood means that you live in this world. This world is essentially your livelihood. You have to take responsibility for it. And it can't stop with just buying things with organic labels. It can't stop with buying things with, uh, from small businesses instead of big corporations. As a matter of fact, you might weigh everything and decide that that is, you know, in your case, irrelevant. But the point is that right livelihood, your living, your ability to survive in this in this world, part of your ability to survive in this world is the U.S. military. Part of your ability to survive in this world is Raytheon and the engineers that work for Raytheon and the people that mop the floors at Raytheon. It's part of your ability to live in this world. And what I'd like you to realize is there's no simple way to deal with this. There is no simple way. You can't make up a list of these are the okay professions and these are the okay companies and these are not. Although that's a really good place to start for you personally is to decide where you would work and, and where you don't. That's a really great place to start. And the world is so complex these days that you can't make up a list of these are the stores you should shop in and these are the stores you should never pass through the doors of. And these are the products you should buy and these are the products you should never touch. 
as we, two weeks ago, part of our discussion was, you know, should you buy shirts made in Bangladesh from a factory that's unsafe and, and collapsed and so forth? And somebody pointed out that if you make that decision, then if enough of this, you know, if we get a movement going and, and we all stop buying shirts made in Bangladesh, that's going to do a lot of good for the Bangladeshis, isn't it? So it's not simple. It's not simple. But the fact that it's not simple, the fact that it's convoluted, the fact that it, that it is complicated, also doesn't mean that we can rationalize doing nothing. It's all a question of what we do. But right livelihood is more than trying to make better choices. It also involves trying to make a difference in a larger sense. I mean, if you don't approve of the military, why try to talk somebody, why try to pick it in front of a, a recruiter's office or talk some, some high school student out of uh, enlisting? It makes more sense to try to make a change in the world where that kind of military isn't necessary. Or if that's too big, too big a chunk to bite off, how about trying to make changes so that what the existing military does uh, is more consistent with the things that you believe in? And they don't go around invading countries because it's in the interest of, uh, of large corporations to do so, things like that. All the, the scope of what you can do is absolutely unlimited. So the time's up, I'm going to leave. I think we need to talk about this a whole lot more. You need to think about these things, though. You need to think about the products you buy. Who made them? You know, how many people here have eaten chicken in the last year? Okay. And are there any of you that don't know how chickens, these chickens you eat, are, are raised? I'll just leave you with this thought. The, the little chicks, they, are, they go thousands of them on these conveyor belts past this place where they use a hot wire to burn their beaks off. And then they grow up in a cage not able to move, they're fed uh, antibiotics and, and hormones and whatever else, so that they grow to the size of uh, uh, the size that looks really good on the grocery store shelf. And uh, a fraction of the time it would take for a normal chicken running around e eating grain and bugs to get to that size. And then, having lived their whole life in this little tiny cage, they're dumped out in huge numbers in a big machine with two, two wheels with rubber flappers on it, goes into this mass of chickens stumbling around and squawking and scoops them onto a conveyor belt one at a time. You know, so you have all the, this conveyor belt, these poor numb chickens, where they, oh, I forgot the part. There's a part of that, okay. They came out of these little cages where they lived their whole life. 
they're carried, you know, I don't know how many, 10 at a time and a handful by somebody working at really low wages who is probably an illegal, who throws them into a huge truck and then they go across to this other place where they're all dumped out. The big machines with the flappers steer them onto a conveyor belt and as they go along, heads removed, dipped in hot water, machines strip all the feathers off, uh, workers, once again, paid ridiculously low wages, cut them up in little pieces, and they go in these nice little packages, you know, wings, thighs, breasts, so on and so forth. I'm just suggesting that <laughs> you, think about, you think about these things. And, uh, and we'll come back, I'll be back in two weeks, and I'd really appreciate it if you come back after you've thought about these things and you have more of a discussion. Okay? Chicken potluck. <laughs> when you come back. <laughs> but people do raise chickens who are free range, right? Yeah. right? And it costs a whole lot more to raise a chicken that way. And not only that, chickens that get to walk around, they're tougher. It takes longer for them to get to eating size, and they're tougher, and it costs a whole lot more. So you might like to support that by buying, if you're going to eat chicken, eat a different kind of chicken. But I just want you to think about it. I'm not telling anybody what they should do. Or should do. That's not what it's about. I just want you to think about it.